Amen. Thank you, praise team, as always. Uh, we're going to start with scripture reading, actually, so open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. I suggest if you have a chance to go and read the entire book from beginning to end, it's about 10 chapters or so. Really fascinating story, so uh, today we're going to kind of cover the first two chapters, but for time's sake, we'll read chapter 2, and then we'll jump into it. So Esther chapter 2, it's right before uh, Proverbs, or Job, I mean, uh, Psalm, Job, Proverbs, right in kind of middle of your Bible. Esther chapter 2, as always, we're reading in the NASB version. But we'll read this together. I apologize if I read a little bit fast. Um, We're going to try to get through things so it doesn't go too long. Esther chapter 2, okay? Now, after these things, when the anger of King Azarias had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, to the, king, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let their cons- cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel of Susa a Jew by the name of Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, and the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem into the captives with the captives, who had been exiled from Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up uh, Hadassah, who was, uh, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king who heard and, uh, were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken into the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, and indeed was in charge of the woman. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with the cosmetics and food, gave her seven choices, uh, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best palace in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into king Asuerus, and the end of the, her 12 months under the regulation of the woman, for the days of the beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices with a cosmetic for women. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shagaz, I love these names, the king's eunuchs who was in charge of the concubine. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle and Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came in to go to the king. She did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in the royal palace for the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that she set, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants and also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Esther had not yet known, made known her kindred or her people even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her and she had done under his care. And in those days when Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big, thin, and Teresh, two of the king's officials from whom who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, but the plot became known to Mordecai and he to Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, 
for the next little season here until we get to Lent as we journey to the cross with Jesus, we have the opportunity to learn from this book of Esther, and I'm super excited. The reason why I'm excited, there are many reasons, but mostly I'm excited because in my opinion, this book of Esther might be the most relevant biblical book to our current cultural context. Now, of course, every book and every scripture is indeed relevant and important to us, but in my opinion, no other book speaks directly and maps out as well to the kind of lives that we do today than Esther does. Consider this, a couple of things that you need to understand. Esther and Mordecai, as we read, are the two main characters, but they have very interesting things. They come from very humble beginnings. They're exiles in a foreign land, and Esther is an orphan. Her father and her mother died tragically, and she's being taken care of by her cousin, Mordecai. Two, both are living in overwhelming religious, as religious minorities in a place where the things of their kind don't match. We saw this in our series at the beginning of the year in lowly greatness, right? Helplessly praying. If you're a, a Christian who's following Christ, then you always face questions like, do we try to fit into this culture? Do we protest everything about the culture because it doesn't seem like we fit? What do we do? How do we live in this kind of world? And that was the kind of uh, choices that Esther and Mordecai were facing every single day. Three, they find themselves in morally and religiously very precarious situations according to their thing. Oh, sorry, I made a mistake. Uh, that three got, can you go on to number four? They live in very, they face morally and religious precarious situations, right? They're doing lots of interesting things, put in lots of interesting situations like you guys might be all the time. And if we just look at the Bible and if you look at the story, they don't do so well which is interesting, kind of like us, I think, right? And then four, or the last one, uh, they got to figure out how to live, right, life in a different or a difficult context. And the most important thing that I think is very uh, relevant to us is in this book, for whatever reason, God is actually very noticeably absent. If you read the entire book of Esther, the name God isn't mentioned a single time. There's no praying. Only book in the Bible where there's no, like, actual praying going on, like someone is, there's no prayer mentioned. There's no religious activities of any kind. Yahweh, his name isn't mentioned. Even the word God, Adonai in Hebrew, isn't mentioned. Like, it's literally not there. And many uh, scholars think that it's actually done deliberately not to mention God. Some people think, like, there's places where God should be mentioned, and it's deliberately avoided because they're trying to do something purposeful. And I think this is really important because isn't this kind of like the way our lives are? We want to hear from God. We want to know what God is doing. We want to, God, help me to do this. Help me to understand what this is. And he just seems many times absent, silent, like he's not there. And we're like, what in the world is going on? And so for me, the reason why this book is the most relevant book to us maybe in our time, right? And the reason why I'm so excited, and you'll see it on the screen, is because unlike much of the Bible, God acts and fulfills his promises, not by miracle or extraordinary events, but to the very normal and ordinary course of human life. And that's what life is like for us. We want miracles. Miracles will be great. But we don't get them, generally. We have to understand what God is up to, even when he feels like he's not up to anything. And God is working through the normal course of life. So how do we deal with that? And so today, as we tell the story of chapters 1 and chapters 2, a text so relatable and knowledgeable to us, we're going to learn three things. Number one, just because God is silent does not mean he is absent. God is always at work. doesn't mean that he's hiding, okay? Number two, the world's way is a way of slavery to appearance and to show. And then three, in contrast to that God's way is one of freedom, beauty, and intimacy, and we'll see indeed how this helps us to live our lives in this context, right? Because again, 
today is Super Bowl, and I'm reminded of it. We can watch the game and do all these things, but do we protest the craziness that's going on in the underbelly of the Super Bowl, or do we just sit quiet? Like those types of things. What if God just miraculously brought a whole bunch of whatever and just like shine light on all the harems and all the hostels or whatever and everyone got found out? Like that'd be great, but that's not happening today. And so how do we deal with this? What do we do? Okay, so number one, just because God is silent does not mean he is absent. Chapter one, if you read, is all about King, actually this King, uh, the name, they give you the Hebrew name, but it's actually King Xerxes. Everyone knows him, the Persian king, right? The one from the movie 300, that's the guy, right? King Xerxes, right? And he wants to host this crazy banquet. And as he's having a really, really grand old time, he's drunk, a, he's drank a little too much wine, he's a little drunk at this point, he decides that he wants to brag about his beautiful queen, Vashti, to all the other men. Very familiar, it seems like. So he wants to come, and he's like, hey, Queen Vashti, come from where you're at, and, and let me show you off to all these men who are here. Let me let them, you know, like, you know, just oogle at you and all these things, right? But Vashti says, no, not happening, not today. Which is kind of crazy because in that culture, right, if you did that, right, it's very, very bad because women don't have that kind of power. Also, King Xerxes is the most powerful man in the entire universe, right, at that point, right? And so her not showing up is problematic in so many ways. Gender roles, cultural shame, all this stuff. And so all the other men that are gathered there, they're like, bro, King Xerxes. They don't call him bro. They just call him majesty or whatever. Like, they're like, hey, this is not good. You can't have this. Women can't be doing this to you. Lest everyone in, the, everyone in the kingdom think that their women can do this to us. So like, you can't do this, right? So we got to get rid of her, right? So then they basically, you know what? Let's banish her and you got to get a new queen, okay? That's the plan. And the plan then is, okay, now we don't have a queen no more, right? And then the plan is, let's gather all of the beautiful young ladies from the entire kingdom. We're talking probably a thousand or more. Bring them all in. And every girl is going to go through this crazy one-year beauty treatment, Six months of spices, six months of this, they get ready. One year of getting ready, getting beautiful, so that they can go in and have one fun night with the king. Basically sleep with him, do whatever he wants them to do, and see if they can please him. Now, if you think about the situation, it's terrible. Because in doing this, as a girl, when you go in for your one night with the king, there's four basic outcomes that might happen, right? And the first one is, you become a permanent concubine. Basically, you sleep with the king one time, and you become a loner for the rest of your life. You live in his harem, in his palace, but that's it. No more men, no more relationships, no getting married. You're just a single dude who got slept with once by the king and then got discarded because you weren't good enough. The second outcome, if you're a little bit more lucky, maybe, is you become one of his favorite concubines, basically. I, I, I apologize to use this term, but it's the only thing. You're a booty call, basically. Whenever the king wants you, you come in and you do whatever the king says. But you live in the harem forever, and that's your only purpose in life. You're not with your family, you're no friends, you're just with the harem girls and that's it. The third one, right, if you're more fortunate, is you become one of two, three, or two or three women that the king thinks he likes enough, then you marry the king and you get special privileges. And if you bear a son, right, if you uh, give birth to a son, then you, that son becomes an heir to the throne perhaps and so you have a little bit more status. And the fourth one, the most fortunate of all these young virgins is you are the favorite and you get to become the queen. So that's the scenario. And so one of the thousand girls that get called in is Esther, right? Who, interestingly, is told to keep her Jewish identity a secret by her cousin Mordecai. And so she goes to this one-year beauty treatment like everybody else. And then she goes in for her one shining night, quote-unquote. And we're told that she, Esther is very beautiful in form and face, which means she's got a great face and a great body. Basically, is the easiest way to say it. And because she does everything she's supposed to do, follows all the rules the eunuch gives her to do and does everything to the T, she favors 
the king and the king loves her and decides, this is going to be my queen. Now, as I told you before, interestingly, in all of this, as Esther's going through all of these different things, you can see the things. Like, do I just actually submit to the king and just do this? All the women in here are like freaking out and be like, what in the world? Why would you do that? That's terrible. Interestingly, Mordecai tells her, don't tell them that you're Jewish. Just pretend that they don't know why. And all these things, in the midst of all this, God is nowhere to be seen. No mention of him. He's completely absent. Religion has completely exited the show and there's nothing there, which isn't an oversight. Again, as I say, it's deliberate. And if you read later in the book, interestingly, the entire Jewish population, the entire ethnicity of Jews comes under attack by the name, by, uh, by a guy, and they're about to become wiped out completely. We're talking genocide levels of wipeout. But interestingly, throughout the book, as I mentioned before, God is nowhere near. Now, if you read the Bible, generally when God's people, the Israelites, are threatened, God does really cool things, right? Everyone remember the 10 plagues? That's when the Israelites are being threatened, so God does crazy things in the plagues. Remember the Red Sea? Like, everyone, everyone kind of, you know, doesn't really think about the Red Sea, but literally an entire sea just goes, splits. I don't even know what that looks like. Like, in the movies, they have, like, the waters just kind of standing there, and a group of people on their chariots and their horses with babies, and everyone kind of just walk through, and the sea's just chilling. And then as soon as they're done, and the Egyptians go in, the sea goes, and just wipes everybody out. Like, God, that's, I mean, if I saw that just one time, And if you saw that just one time, would anyone be able to be like, dude, God is fake? Are you kidding me? And then, of course, when they're going through the wilderness, God leads them by clouds and pillars of fire. Like, when God wants to show up to be and to be the savior of his people, it is spectacular. It is a show. It is miracle beyond miracle. But here, for whatever reason, when the entire uh, nation of uh, Jews that are spread out everywhere in that time are under threat to be wiped clean, literally murdered off the face of the earth. God does nothing, it seems. He's absent, silent. What you get is a long string of very ordinary events that eventually leads to the saving and the rescuing of Jews from mass genocide. And if you read, as we'll read through, and we'll kind of study it, even if one of those little random normal things doesn't happen, the whole plan goes, we'll go off the rails. Most likely, the entire Jewish people get wiped out by a very angry dude who has that kind of power. Right? Like, for instance, right? when the Jews were under threat by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, plagues come. But in this situation, in order for everything to happen and the Jews to be saved, you know one of the first important things that happens is? King Xerxes gets drunk. Woo! Now, if you show, like, if the pillar of fire comes and a plague comes and the Red Sea splits, you're like, dude, that's God. Like, for sure. Like, look at that. That's freaking amazing. You see a happy king drunk. Dude, that's God at work. Dude, that's amazing. No, that's just a dude who got drunk because he can. What happens if Esther isn't pretty? Doesn't the whole plan go off the rail? She doesn't become the queen? What happens if Mordecai doesn't overhear a conversation about two people trying to kill the king? In a detail you'll find out later, for some reason, whenever, whenever, that, found was thing, the, whenever that plan was found out, Mordecai doesn't get congratulated. He doesn't get honored. He doesn't get a reward then, but he gets it later, which becomes very important. 
Okay, when you see a river of blood, when you see a plague, when you see a fire, that's God. When you see a drunk king, that's not God. When you see a queen who, for whatever reason, decides to say no, even though she should say yes, that's God. Well, maybe, but maybe not. God is at work in the littlest of things. You just might not know that he's at work. God is at work keeping the promise to Abraham to make a nation great out of him and his descendants. It just doesn't seem like maybe he's up to something. And this is really important because isn't this our story? The longer you live as a Christian, isn't this your thing? How many times in your life can you say, you know what, God miraculously did A, B, C, and D, and this is why I got here. Most of the time, it's these little things that happen, all of them really important. But in the moment, you just didn't know that they were. My life is literally this. The fact that I'm here as your pastor and I get to do what I do in life was a string of little things all the way on through. Little things like my grandma praying in a closet and not listening to me when I used to scream at her because a phone call came. Little things like having a lunch here or a conversation here and then me being convinced that this is indeed the way to go. Me saying no to my parents and going to Vancouver to go ahead and become a pastor, get married to Christina, do all these things, that's what led me to here. Even little things, it may not be a little thing, but our family getting separated and first got to Houston, all that stuff, seemingly so normal, seemingly so everyday, but if you look at the bigger picture and look back, so important to this thing, this life. It's what many people call providence. It's a fancy term. In a commentary, a lady by the name of Karen Job, she says it's this. Providence and this idea is this the idea that God in some invisible and inscrutable way governs all creatures' actions and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. The biblical interpretation of this is Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Mark my words. God will use very normal events in your life. Some happy, some quite tragic. All of it put together to form Christ in you and me. And though in the moment all those things seem quite completely normal, again, maybe really happy, maybe really terrible, you'll realize later that some of them are actually quite extraordinary. If that doesn't happen, you're not standing or sitting where you are at. We would all love for God to work in extraordinary ways, to give extraordinary signs, be like, ooh, there you go, that's what I should do. But rarely does he ever. But don't mistake, because God is always at work behind the scenes through all the normal things. One of the famous, one of the stories I like to tell about this is the time I tore my knee when I first got to Houston. Again, I just got separated from my family, and then I tore my knee, like literally one right after the other. If you know anything about me, tearing an ACL is not cool because I love to play basketball, and I couldn't play basketball for two years. I didn't play basketball. But in those two years, I took my time because I couldn't play basketball to sit at a gym and watch others play basketball and then build relationships with many of the older guys and many of you. And it what allowed, it's literally what allowed me to have good relationships with a lot of you dudes in here, and it really set the course for a lot of the stuff that we do. But if I could play, I would have been the biggest a-hole ever because I'm not a very good, 
you know, maybe you think differently of now. When I first came to Houston, I was an angry basketball player. And my goal was to make sure every single one of you knew that I was better than you, even though I was your pastor. But then God changed that because I couldn't play. And it became all about building relationships. See, God is at work. And I'm not saying God purposely tore my knee up. No. But if that doesn't happen, literally the course of this ministry, I think it changes. It doesn't go the same way. So wherever you're at in life right now, you may think that God is absent. Or you may think terrible things are happening and God's not doing anything about them. I would encourage you, maybe you've got to wait a little bit before you decide what's going on. Because if the book of Esther is any indication God is up to something, it just might that you might not be realizing it. At least not yet. Number two. The world's way, we learn in Esther, is slavery to appearance and to show. The story starts out with this banquet, and it's a ridiculous one. Did you, if you read in chapter one, you realize that the banquet, King Xerxes' plan, was 180 days long. You know why? I mean, what, what banquet lasts 180 days? That's half a year, right? But you know why it had to be half a year, six months? Because his goal was to show off to the entire important people, all the important in the kingdom, right, in his kingdom, how rich he was. It was literally going to take him six months to bring in to, that, uh, to, the, to the palace all of his riches and then literally one by one, like a fashion show, just show it off to the people. It was going to take six months. That's how filthy rich this guy was, okay? And as he's doing this, he's literally parading it in front of them. It's a show of wealth and then power. It's what King Xerxes' kingdom is all about. It's like when little boys play with Nerf guns. It's all about who got the biggest and baddest gun. That kind of an idea. And then chapter two, then all of a sudden, we get an international beauty pageant. You get Miss Persia Universe, basically. Because in the Persian culture, right, as Tim Keller says, the most important thing about a man is his power and his wealth. And the most important thing about a woman is her beauty and sexual prowess. That's just the way it was. Whoever's more powerful and wealthy always gets his way. And the most beautiful and sexually pleasing ladies get the favor in the kingdom. Now, if you're hearing... Most of us, I think, sensible enough would be like, dude, that is freaking terrible. Ladies in here, you don't want to be judged simply based upon your physical beauty and your sexual prowess. Most of you don't even know what that means. But I guarantee you that's not what you're going to be want to be chased, uh, judged off of. And so we might think in here and be like, man, that is a freaking terrible place to live. That's disgusting. That's chauvinistic. That's in so many ways. Like, I'm so glad, many people will say, that I don't live in those days because it's really barbaric. And I'm so glad that we're so much more enlightened than that. But then I want to ask, are we really? As I said, this Friday we're going to watch the documentary called Save My Soul. It's a documentary about sex trafficking and prostitution. But there, a lot of the men, they say things like, I mean, it's just the way that it is. The women aren't victims. They just choose to do it. I mean, they're making money after all, aren't they? I was like, some of them are asked, like, what if it's your daughter? And be like, as long as it's not my daughter, it's okay. Well, it's someone else's daughter. Well, it's not mine, so it's okay. You gotta ask yourself, isn't our world the same in many ways as the one that King Xerxes perpetuated? What's important to you? What's the most important thing about you? Isn't it your externals, your image, the clothes you wear, right? The fresh haircut that you have? Aren't those things actually more important to the world in many people's eyes than your character and your integrity? Don't we live in a world where the color of your skin maybe matters more than the integrity of your character? Isn't the world that you live in still much about beauty, power, money, skill, intellect, and fame? 
Remember the beauty treatments? I read that and I was like, dude, that's freaking crazy. One year of beauty treatments? And then I thought about it. Wait a minute. Wait, we are all going, undergoing some type of cultural beauty treatment, aren't we? I mean, let me know if this sounds familiar to you. Unless you students in here get a participate in certain clubs, get a certain GPA and therefore rank in school and go to a certain university, get a certain degree, earn a certain credential, work at a certain firm or company, drive a certain car, live in a certain size house, you are worthless and not good enough in the eyes of the world and you need to do better. Sound familiar? This is what the world tells us our life is all about. And if you put it that way, which is a realistic way, it's actually not that much different than the world that King Xerxes used to live in. Go get the world's beauty treatments. And I'm not knocking some of the things that you do, but go get the world's beauty treatments. Go to this academy, go to this hagwan, go to this thing for that one opportunity with the king, for that one opportunity with the firm, for that one opportunity with the university, so that indeed, depending on how well you do in that one situation, it'll tell you whether or not you will succeed and have status or fail and be banished forever, a concubine to the world's system, as Tim Keller says. Now you might be saying, Pastor, there you go again, just being really extreme. You love exaggeration, hyperbole. You make everything sound so terrible. Now, on one level, you're right. And my apologies for that. Because Esther's situation and ours is actually very different on one major level. Esther didn't have a choice. Not in my opinion, anyway. Unless you consider death and rape or whatever a choice. Probably not. But we, us, I think we have a choice don't we? Now, it may not seem like you have a choice. And many of you say that. Pastor, I don't have a choice. I have to do it this way. If not, then I'm going to be a failure in life. But is that really true? Remember, we talked about being lowly great and about helpless prayer. That's a choice. So we have to ask ourselves in one sense, what is actually driving you in life? What is actually the motivating factor for everything that you do? Is it the world system of appearance and show Whatever you look like on the outside is everything that you have or is our choice in the way that we want to live at the way of God, the lowly greatness, lowering and serving of helpless prayer where you allow God to be the judge and the savior and everything for you. Now, perhaps you might not have actually completely sold out to the system, but all of us in some way, shape or form, I think, have submitted to this idea of a beauty, power, wealth, appearance, show, And that's not the way God wants it to be. Is that the way we're living? Because I think Esther points out the fact that that's indeed the way the world has always been. And unfortunately, however many thousands of years later, it hasn't changed. So then the third thing that we learn that's important is that there's a different way, a choice. As I said, God's way, which is one of freedom, beauty, intimacy. Now here this, here's the good news and you need to hear it. Many people, interestingly, if you study the book of Esther, are torn on exactly who Esther is, right? Some people think she's like the greatest female character in the Bible and others say she's the worst actually. But most people agree, at least in chapter 2 and chapter 1, Esther is a religious and moral failure, a sellout to the culture. 
Now, interestingly, if you know what a feminist is, a feminist is someone who like loves, you know, like a female power, female prowess, you know, like women, uh, you know, hear me war, that kind of thing. Like, you know, women have equality, all that kind of stuff. Feminists actually who read this think she's a sellout. And they'll compare it to Queen Vashti. Because remember when the king said, when in his drunken stupor, the king says, Vashti, queen, come, show all these men how beautiful you are and how lucky of a guy that I am, that you're, you know, that I'm your queen more so, how lucky of a girl you are to be my queen, right? Come and show everyone just how beautiful you are. And she says, no. So the, lady, so the feminists will be like, you know what, she's great. There you go. That's women standing up to, uh, to the men, to the power of the world, and saying no. But Esther, she joins the system. She goes through all the treatments. She goes in for a one night. She does everything to the T, by the book, by the rules, and then wins because she sells out to the system, they'll say. And in many ways, they're kind of right. I wouldn't tell Kara that she should be like Esther, at least the chapter one, chapter two version of Esther. Sell your body and your beauty to the wits of powerful men so you can get what you want in the end. And there's, even, there's not even a mention, as I said, of like how she's torn about what she should do, right? It's just utter compliance, right? So feminists think that Esther sucks, and maybe they have a point. But conservatives, which is kind of the other side, right? People who think like you should be like by the book, by the Bible, they also don't like Esther, even though you think like she's just following all the rules. Because they'll say, no, 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 she's a sellout. Because she goes to the beauty treatments, which means she violates Jewish dietary laws, which is a really bad no-no. And then she goes in and sleeps with the king, right? Which means she's sleeping with someone she isn't married to. That's a really, really, really bad no-no. And then later, even eventually marries a king who's a foreigner who doesn't know and doesn't submit to Yahweh's name, which is like a million triple oh, no, 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 no's. So interestingly, for whatever the reason, feminists and conservatives all Think, and by the way, these two groups of people don't ever really agree on anything. They agree that Esther is a failure. Now, you and I probably feel at this point that Esther indeed didn't have a choice. Like, what's she supposed to do, right? Refuse and be banished, or worse? Don't play along and have her life ruined. It was going to be ruined anyway. Now, at this point, some people will say, and be like, well, she does have a choice. Remember Daniel and his friends? Does everyone know that story? They go in to the king, and you know what they decide to do? They decide to go and get burned in the fire. And the people were like, Esther could have done that too. If those three men can do it, then she could have done it too. So you're like, no, they have a choice. But she's a woman, which is different in many ways. Now, others might say, well, well, it doesn't really matter what she did now because in the end she saves the Jews, right? Like, is it wasn't it all worth it? Well, that's also not a really good reason because there's that phrase, right? The means don't justify the ends, which is literally like, it doesn't, like, you know, that's a way of saying, like, it doesn't matter what happens right? How you get there as long as the end result is a good thing? Well, that's, that's not true. That can never actually be true. Just because you get the desired outcome doesn't mean that the uh, matter is good. You can win a war many different ways. You don't have to kill everybody to do so. Like, just because the end result is what you want doesn't mean that the way was good. So you can't actually sell that point either. So then, indeed, the question becomes, what are we supposed to learn? What is the point? And we want to wrap it all up here. Because here's the situation and reason why I'm so excited for Esther. It paints this picture of what the world is like. This is the kind of world that we live in. It's the world that we've always lived in, in sin. And we're trying to follow God, follow Jesus, but let's be really honest, it's really, really hard sometimes. Nearly impossible. If you go against the beauty system and try to go against the world, then you feel like a failure and everyone will tell you that you have no future in life. So you try not to sell out, but indeed, you fail like Esther does. I think the point that we have to make is that we can't use this understanding and look at her failures and rights and wrongs and think that that's the point. 
Because if you know the ending of the book, Esther goes from sellout to savior, quote unquote. And the question you got to ask is, how does she go from such a sellout to a savior? I think the way you might look at it is like, let's say I became like one of those pastors on TV and I drive like a Lamborghini and a Ferrari and I like, you know, ride in helicopters and I have this like mansion or whatever, like those kind of things. They'll say, oh, you sold out to the system, Pastor Pete. But if I went from that to someone who did, I don't know, I don't know what the equivalent would be. But if I did that, like the idea is how did it happen? The idea isn't to judge whether what Esther did was terribly wrong or right or whether it was justified because in the end the Jews were saved. The idea is how did it happen and who made it work? Because it certainly was not Esther who indeed made all this go the way it was supposed to go. And the answer is pretty simple. Esther goes from sellout to savior because God stays with her. God grows her and turns her into one of the most impactful characters in all of scripture, let alone a female, just anyone. She saves the entire Jewish people from genocide. And if you read the Bible and if you read understand it, you'll see that the message of the Bible is exactly this. And here's what you gotta listen to and you gotta understand. God doesn't use amazing people to save his kingdom. God doesn't use morally and religiously upright people, exemplary people to indeed do his work. He actually uses very, very, very ordinary people, regular people. Actually, he uses the least people, the people who are discounted, who are ostracized, people who don't think they can do anything. The people who are the most overlooked, actually, most of the time. Moses couldn't speak. David was a young kid, so on and so forth. Jesus was a carpenter boy who didn't even have a father, so on and so forth, that kind of a thing. Like, he does this. And then throughout all of scripture, you'll find, and God is doing this with you and through everyone, he's always continually giving, always continually loving, and he hears his people. And here's what you gotta hear. That somehow, some way, it seems, no matter how badly you screw up, you cannot write yourself out of God's story. His script is his, and it's going to go to the end. You may feel like God is hidden, or he's silent, but he's working, I promise. He's alive and he's active. So the beauty of this passage, the beauty of the entire book of Esther is that a hidden God still makes all things beautiful. Do you know that? A hidden God still somehow makes all things beautiful. And you gotta notice the one little thing, we'll end here. Did you notice how King Xerxes and God are basically like counterpart opposites here, even though you don't notice? That's what I think the author's trying to get you to see. See, King Xerxes, he calls the women from Vashti to the thousands of young virgins, but for what? For his gain, for his pleasure, for his purposes. But God, he also desires us and he also calls us. So for what? So that we might become his spouse, to marry us, that we might become his bride, the church. And like Esther, who may be physically beautiful, we're not so beautiful because spiritually she was broken and ugly like we most often are. But see, you then discover, as you look at this, that the difference between King Xerxes and the world and God is that God is patient with Esther and therefore he's patient with us. He loves Esther and through our flaws and he loves us through our flaws. God's invitation, unlike the king's invitation, doesn't end up with us becoming concubines, banished forever. It ends up becoming us becoming spouses, children of the God, family of God. King Xerxes will use you and abuse you and throw you out to be nothing unless he wants to use you again. But God's invitation and God's love grows us. It grows Esther. It turns us into something that you and I cannot be without his help. And the promise is that indeed he will continue to do this. 
We've mentioned this a couple times. Esther, for whatever reason, becomes the queen through her body and through her beauty. She pleases the king and finds favor through the shaming of her, maybe of her body, maybe even of her soul. But you and I, we're become married to God, not in that way. He calls us to himself, and the moment we show up, he says this. I'm not looking for how beautiful you are. I'm not looking for how skilled you are. I'm not looking for how intelligent you are, and I'm not looking for how much you can love or please me. I want one thing and one thing only. You need to hear this. I want you to be my joy, my delight, my life, and for you to find life in me. But here's the catch. You on your own cannot have this life. Something must happen. And the thing that's going to happen is that I have to die for your sin so that you can be made beautiful. Because with sin, it's impossible. So you know the story. Jesus then goes to the cross to redeem all of you so that you and I can be made beautiful and become married to him. We're going to sing a song called Ever Be. It talks about us being God's wife and his spouse. Do you know that's what you're designed to be? To be the absolute and utter apple of God's eye. See, the world will tell you that you're nothing. The world will tell you that you're not good enough. The world will tell you in many different ways that you are not and you do not have what it takes. But family, you must understand God's desire for you is that you would become the most absolutely, utterly, spectacularly beautiful thing and person that God has ever laid eyes on. And crazy enough, God is gonna make this happen in the times when he seems most absent and we need to hear it. And it's this hiddenness that actually makes his goodness so beautiful. God is trying, as we're trying today in our prayers for Atlanta, to try to free us from becoming concubines to the world system. And rather, he wants us to be his spouse. So hear this, church. As we go through this next little season, I invite the praise team up to close us out. I think what this understanding, as you read the book of Esther, and I want you to go home and read it and just really think. Place yourself in Esther's shoes. But if you understand God in this way, if you understand and know who he is, then I think it does three important things that you and I have to understand. And I want you to pray and, and embody this through this week. The first thing this text does, the first thing we understand through the book of Esther is that it makes us look at God rather than looking at ourselves. It makes you obsess over God's beauty and not your which, of course, if you understand, is the only way we actually see and know true beauty. Everyone will tell you, for the older people, that marriage is hard. And that actually your spouse isn't as beautiful or as lovely as you think he or she might be. And that's true on their own. But if I can see God who is the most beautiful thing, beautiful person, beautiful anything, and see that God sees my wife as the most beautiful daughter, that he wants her to become something amazing, even beyond what I can see, then I'm looking at true beauty all the time. And I obsess over the beauty that God wants for her, not the beauty that she contains in herself right now. See, Tim Keller says this, and it's beautiful. He says, on the cross, Jesus becomes cosmically unsightly, ugly, but that through it, we would show true beauty. So the first thing it does is it tells, it takes the vision off of us and makes us look at God. And the second thing that it does, and it shows us how beautiful you are. Jesus says, I'm going to be your bridegroom and I want you to be my bride. I want you to be utterly beautiful in my sight. 
See, when a bride walks down the aisle, and I've been a part of it with Marie and Victor's wedding, I saw my wife walk down the aisle, I'll get to do a couple more weddings this year, I'm super excited, but when that bride walks down, everybody goes, oh my goodness, (gasps) you just go crazy because of how beautiful that person is, and do you know that the God of the universe would go to the cross so that indeed you can feel this way and know this about yourself every single day of your life. You are that beauty, you are that effervescence, you Jesus is saying it's supposed to be his beautiful bride. Find anyone in the world who will tell you that. Over and over and over again. In spite of your flaws. But even better. I didn't have the gumption to tell this, tell this to my wife on the day up, but I really wish she didn't wear any makeup on that day because I think all it did was conceal the beauty that God had inside of her. She felt beautiful because of all the stuff she put on. No, we are beautiful because of what God does in us. Isn't that the beauty you want for the world to see? And then third, then suffering in the world, it refines you. Because you'll know that the God of the universe absolutely believes with all of his heart that you are good and beautiful and that he's going to make you this way. And when you understand this, you become like a diamond, an unbreakable thing that no one's words or hatred or doubt can indeed break. And if Jesus becomes your bridegroom, your spouse, who delights in you forever, it frees you to live the lives that we're supposed to live now and forever. Did you notice that when Esther becomes the queen, she gets Esther's banquet? An entire day gets devoted to her and her alone. And that's what God wants in you. The suffering, it makes you more beautiful. Because God has bigger plans. So church... Family, I'm going to give you a minute as we close to think about the lives you live today. About the things you're submitting to to become better, more beautiful, more skilled, more worthy. And I hope and I pray that you would take some time to think about the God who is always at work, even if you don't think so, to make you the most beautiful and effervescent, wonderful person world has ever seen and that you would desire the love of someone who thinks of you knows you and has created you this way so can you do that what systems are you submitting to what are you living by Are you a slave to the world of appearance and show? Or are you free to live in a world of freedom, intimacy, and beauty God's way? And as I look, what I see is indeed a church and a people striving and trying to receive God's love to become the people he's created us to be. So you take a moment and just just respond to the Lord. And then we're going to sing songs of his beauty and his splendor and the beauty that's in you. And I pray that today and as we go through this series, that you would be encouraged and that you would discover the beauty that God has for you, the goodness he has for you, and then find life in his name. Let's pray.
Lord, help us to pray in this moment and respond. That your spirit would be alive. And may we sing these songs with all that we have to your glory. Amen. Take some time and then we'll respond in song.